Welcome to Change Making Women, the podcast for women who make a difference. With Siada Baid in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, and Marianne Clements in London, in the UK. So, hi, and welcome to another episode of Change Making Women. I'm Marianne Clements in London, in the UK, and I'm here with Siada, as usual. Hi, everyone. Yeah, and I'm in Dar es Salaam. That's where I'm podcasting from. Hi, Ziada. And then we have a guest with us this evening, who is Carrie Brownlee, who's the Director of Finance and Operations for Concern Worldwide UK. So hi, Carrie. How are you doing? Hi, Marianne. Hi, Ziada. I'm well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's great to have you on the show. And we just thought we'd start by asking you a little bit about yourself and the work you do at Concern Worldwide just to give mm-hmm. our listeners a, a little idea about you. Okay um, so I've been in the international NGO sector for, for over six years now in various roles within finance and in different organisations and as you said I'm now the Director of Finance and Operations at Concern Worldwide UK and I also sit on the board of trustees for a smaller international NGO called Able Child Africa. Yeah. I've been on the board there for about five years. Mm -hmm. So um, across my various roles with smaller international NGOs, larger ones, I used to work at Save the Children. I've had quite a, a broad sort of overview of the sector and finance within the sector. Mm. Um, and yeah, really find it hugely rewarding um, sector to work in feels mm. inspire me mm. every day um, and then I mean I guess on a personal note at the moment I'm almost eight months pregnant so yeah that's quite an exciting new challenge yeah absolutely <laughs> yeah that's a little bit about me yeah, and I should have said at the beginning, yeah, so, um, I, I used to work at Able Child Africa, but before your time, so we're like, yeah. we know a little bit about the same organisation, but not in the same time frame, so that's interesting too. So yeah. I might, yeah, <laughs> I might actually start there and just ask you about, like, in terms of the finance side and the, the things that you're focused on. Like how, um, what's different about a larger organisation like Save the Children or Concern Worldwide to, and, and a small one like Able Child Africa? Like what's, yeah, what do you find yeah. different in terms of finances? Well, I guess um, the challenges, they are, they are shared across the sector mm-hmm. in many ways. You know, fundraising is always a challenge. Levels of reserves is always a challenge. Um, but I think what it, what you say, what you feel at um, a smaller organisation like Able Child is really the the pressure. Mm. Of every every pound mm. kind of matters. Yeah. And, uh, so the challenges are just much more prom- you know prominent. They're much more extreme they're much more in the day-to-day um, yeah. 
whereas the challenges are similar and and also can be at a greater scale obviously you know an organization like save the children uk where where i was mm. um the scale of something going wrong or the scale of sort of um a fundraising appeal expectation you know was qu quite different um, mm. so the, the numbers that you're talking about are, are different but the the challenges and the stresses you know, they are genuinely quite similar across mm. the organisations and certainly coming to Able Child at the time when I had been at Save the Children for a while, mm. the perspective that I had from Save the Children was still really relevant to the discussions that we were having at Able Child at that time. And then from Save the Children, I went on to work at an organisation called War Child UK, mm -hmm. which is a growing international NGO a really different phase of its life than both Able Child and Save the Children and Concern mm. Worldwide UK. But again, the discussions that we were having at a sort of senior level in terms of the challenges of where you invest your resources and, and how you grow and how you meet the, the needs of your target beneficiaries, you know, those discussions are similar across the sector. Mm, interesting, yeah. Um, so, so we were going to um, ask you about the challenges in terms of the financing in the international development sector and um, yeah, what, what stand out for you as the sort of current challenges in the sector around this? I guess I've probably got some views as well, but I'm interested to hear from your kind of finance background because I'm definitely, definitely not a finance person. <laughs> yeah. What you see? Oh, make the two of us. <laughs> Neither of us are right. Exactly. No. <laughs> yeah, it certainly gives you a different perspective on things. Um, but I think yeah, there there are many challenges in the sector right now, and I'm sure if you asked someone working in finance twenty years ago, there would have been many challenges, and I'm sure some of them would have been similar. Yeah. But I think um, for me at the moment, working in the with the organisations that, that I've worked with in the past and that I work with now, it does seem like the world is becoming more fragile and more dangerous, or at least the countries where we are now focusing our attention mm. are certainly those more fragile countries. At Concern Worldwide UK, that's where our focus is, mm. working in the sort of hardest to reach areas. And obviously at War Child, we worked with conflict affected countries. Yeah. So my sense is that those countries they bring with them new challenges um, that you know where, where the context is just so much more complex and the security situation can be very challenging and that brings with it operational challenges as well as mm. programming challenges and how you make an impact in that context is quite different from working in a more stable environment mm. and that makes it really difficult I think to demonstrate progress and impact to mm. the people who are really interested in understanding what the, where their money is going or where their money would go and what difference it would make um, when you're seeing so many um, so many different conflicts going on around the world and then you've got natural disasters and you've got famine you've got climate change and you know all of these things come come together it makes it really really difficult to say well actually we are making progress which mm. we are and, and, and we are saving lives every day mm. but that can be quite difficult 
Um, and then making that even more difficult, there seems to be a right-wing media campaign against international aid in general mm. at the moment. And that is a real, real challenge for the sector where we need to find a way to really talk honestly and openly about some of these challenges that we're facing mm. and break through some of the, the barriers that, that we have to make sure that people continue to support us and appreciate what we're doing so that we can continue to do the work that we're doing, which I think is really hugely important. Mm. But the world is really just changing at such an incredible rate. And I think it's really difficult for charities to invest in the areas that they need to invest in to keep up with that. Mm. You know, if you're thinking about the technological changes, the generational changes and yeah. just how how do we justify investing in those areas so that we remain relevant and remain effective and efficient when the world is changing so quickly and every single penny counts and you know we really agonize over those decisions as to where to invest money but i think that we have to make sure that we're taking a really broad look at what is actually going to help us achieve our mission now and in the future because actually surviving as an organization into the future to help the people who need our support tomorrow and the next day is it's really really important um, mm. but at the same time in the UK the sector is just coming under increased pressure from various directions yeah. so you've got the media campaign that I, that I mentioned but also we've got increasing compliance coming from the charity commission coming from HMRC coming from the data protection regulator coming from the fundraising regulator yeah. and all of these things combined to really put a huge pressure on what is really already you know a finite resource yeah, um, and a resource that's becoming even more um, strained because of what we're seeing in the UK at the moment as well. You know, in terms of economic uncertainty, and yeah. I don't want to say it, but Brexit and yeah. <laughs> all yeah. that is coming together to what seems like a really difficult moment for the sector, but a really important moment that we need to really, really consider what we're doing, how we're doing it, how we're communicating that. Yeah. and make sure that the decisions that we're taking are good ones and that we're able to demonstrate why why those are are good decisions why we've taken those decisions why we've invested in those resources yeah. and why we've invested in those areas so there are many many um challenges that some of them that i've seen over the last few years really coming to the forefront and certainly at Concern Worldwide UK and, and also at Able Child, some of the things that we are talking about at, at a sort of strategic level. Mm -hmm. I think there's, I've, I've definitely felt this like, um, there's this increasing pressure to demonstrate that every pound you spend is going somewhere specific and that makes it so difficult for organisations to invest, like you said, in kind of the future preparedness and development. Yeah. Because there just kind of isn't any money for that essentially available, or if that you know in order to make some, you kind of have to sacrifice other things, and that's really tricky 
when if, especially when you know like you said that the world is changing so fast and you actually need to keep up to be relevant and useful yeah yeah, yeah. Mm. And I guess that applies both in terms of kind of the program side, but also in terms of fundraising. Like you need to keep up with technology on both sides. So yeah, that, yeah, definitely. And I think the generational changes as well is something that really ha has impacted fundraising. We don't communicate the same way as we did. 10 mm. years ago people don't read the news the same way as they did 10 years ago they don't engage oh. with the news the same way they did yeah you know, when when i was younger and um and how how do you keep up with that and how do you continue to reach new audiences yeah absolutely when i first joined ava child africa and it wasn't called ava child africa then, but um, there was a lot of we used to write to people you know like mainly yeah. like we yeah. used to print them off in the office or rather, I used to print them off in the office and stick them in envelopes. And yeah, it was only 15 years ago. <laughs> but now, you know, that kind of thing is like, is it worth it, right? Because who reads their mail? <laughs> well, it's interesting, yeah, but it, but it is. For some, for some agencies, depending on the profile of your supporters, it is yeah. worth it. It's still but worth then, it, yeah. You know, you have to think about, well, how are you going to increase your supporter base? And if actually you're very traditional and, and that's what you've always done and you need to keep doing that for the supporters that you have, yeah. how do you justify investing in other areas where you're less sure that you're going to get a response and that it's going to be value for money? And value for money is just so important in every decision that we take. So taking risks to try new things, it's really difficult. Yeah. And I, I often think, like, compared to, like, the business world, you know, where they, they sort of, like, write off money to risks all the time. It's, it's so difficult for charities, and particularly when they're under the level of scrutiny that the sector has been under. Yeah. It's very hard to basically innovate <laughs> or take those risks. Um, You've mentioned something about, you know, uh, talking about the risk and everything. For instance, and, uh, you know, for, let's say, the NGOs, let's say, in Africa or in Tanzania. Marianne, you, you've, you know, you are in Tanzania and you mm. played a role a bit. Um, in terms of risk management financially, how do you guys handle that? Mm, interesting. So more and, in terms of the work on the ground, you mean? Yes, work on the ground, exactly. I mean, it, it is a challenge, but it's something that um, it will, will, will definitely differ in different agencies. So certainly at Able Child, we, are, we operate through partners only, and we, we don't have any Able Child staff on the ground mm. in um, the countries that we, we run programmes in. Then it, it's a completely different approach, but certainly it is um, about really engaging with the partners at a partnership level um, and building that partnership relationship, building capacity, building communication channels and, and going out there and seeing the work mm. in person on the ground and making sure that the organisations that we're working with have appropriate policies and procedures in place and doing some checks that those policies and procedures are adhered to. Yeah. And that's, I guess, quite similar to what we would do at Concern Worldwide UK, where in some of our countries we work through partners to quite a large extent 
and, and definitely less so in, in other countries. But again, it's just building that relationship and then working with the local organisations to make sure that the policies and procedures that they have in place meet the expectations that you have in terms of what you would want to see in place to ensure that there were limited there was limited scope for for things to go wrong mm. but it's really just about I think engagement at a partnership level um, and I think that that is a challenge for the sector I, I think that we we are increasingly working with local NGOs and that's a really great thing to see and it's a good trend but how do we do that really well to make sure that we are building trust and that we are building capacity and that we are working in partnership with rather than as a donor sort of donor recipient type relationship which potentially won't have such a sustainable impact on the, the local NGO as we would like. Uh, Marianne, you may have a different perspective. <laughs> Do I have a perspective? I think my perspective is that there, there's like, there's, there's things that you can do, like you've described really well, Carrie, around, one thing is like building relationships, which is what you're saying. So like making sure that you, you've got a relationship with the people that you're working with, so be it partners, it could be staff as well, but making sure the relationship is good and the communication channels are open. So that also if something does go wrong at some point or in some state, you know, you could have a great partner and they might have one member of staff that does something that's not okay, you know, but making yeah. sure that those channels of communication are open and, you know, that can happen anywhere in the world as well, right? But um, yeah. making sure that the, yeah that there is a good relationship and making sure that like they feel able to come to you if they need help and support to understand what is required, you know, um, and and then yeah and then there's a sort of checking element of it, which is like doing what you reasonably can to do due diligence beforehand and you know before you send anyone any money and then checking how they're spending it when they're spending it and there are all kinds of ways that you can build that in and do that and there's you know audits that you can do and that other organizations can do and I think there's like a reasonable um there's a re like there's reasonably good practice actually around all those things in the sector because it's been kind of demanded of us by yeah. the questions that people ask <laughs> <laughs> that's that is it is true it is um it's expected and we have to demonstrate that we have done all of these things. Um, yeah. But I think thinking again about some of the challenges in the sector and coming back to the resource challenge, um, you know, we can end up spending quite a significant amount of time and money doing all of these checks and making sure that yeah. we have everything in place to meet the donor's expectations. And it also can really be a barrier to developing a partnership relationship that we would really like to see with mm. local NGOs. So mm. I think that there is a challenge there to make sure that we bring donors along on a journey where we are actually developing partnerships with local NGOs to make sure that we have that sustainable impact that we really want to have. Because ultimately international NGOs should be looking to leave. Yeah. 
um, and, and hopefully leave things in a in a way that local NGOs, if, if still necessary in the context, can carry on the programming mm. without the support of international NGOs. But in order to do that, you need to be able to invest in capacity building. You need to be able to invest your your time with the local NGOs more than just checking and auditing what they're doing. Yeah. And I think that that can be a, a real challenge, but something certainly that um, I think Able Childs do really, really well mm. um, in really developing deep partnerships with the, the local agencies that they're working with. And that's something that, um, you know, we definitely feel really proud of and we think works really well for the programming that Able Child is is delivering. Um, yeah. Yeah, I definitely I definitely agree with that. And I think it's like ultimately um you know one of the problems that in a way we're trying to solve in international development is how do you get resources to where they're needed, you know? <laughs> and yeah. like part of part of how you do that is through developing partnerships and figuring out who it is that's doing really interesting and important work and then and then figuring out ways to transfer resource to them and help them to do what they do as best they can, you know. Um, yeah. Definitely. And I and I think that that and the, the sort of trend towards that working together and working in collaboration with people who have the expertise that you need to support your program or that you need to, to deliver your objectives mm. is one of the ways that we are able to address the sort of the resource constraints that we have placed upon us because actually that's a much more efficient way of working mm. is is not trying to set up the same expertise in every NGO, but actually NGOs working, bringing the expertise that they have to the table, whether those are international NGOs or, or local NGOs, bringing all of those people to the same programme to mm. deliver a wider impact and, and recognising where you don't have the expertise that someone else already does, so you don't need to buy them in, I guess. Um, and that can be a really efficient and effective way of working. And actually, um, it's good. To, I think from what I've seen is that the sector is moving more towards that. But there is a risk in the way that it is moving that smaller NGOs are, could, could potentially be left behind and, and kind of lost in the reshuffle, I guess. Mm. Um, but those smaller NGOs are the ones that I think have the the sort of the really rare expertise um, that perhaps the larger NGOs haven't focused on so much. So thinking about Able Child as an expert and working with children with disabilities in Africa, um, you know, and being able to bring those expertise to the table, working with larger NGOs who just don't have that specialist knowledge mm. in their agencies is, I would really love to see that happening more. Mm. Um, than larger agencies trying to develop those expertise within their organization because actually the expertise are there and they're available mm. <laughs> um, and just to make sure that we are utilizing them where, where they already exist and I think that that yeah would, would help make sure that we are working in a really efficient way and using every pound mm. to its full potential. Mm. Mm. Yeah I definitely agree with that. 
<laughs> I feel like I've been saying that for years. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. No, no finally, someone else is saying it. Yeah, well, that's true. <laughs> I think that like working together more and like utilizing other people's expertise is like it's quite an easy thing to like say is a good idea but making it work really well is like it's something else it's like figuring out all the it's the relationship thing again mm, it's where yeah. sometimes people you know it can get a bit challenging but I definitely think it's yeah yeah, yeah right. I agree and I think it's it's about approaching the relationship of with respect for yeah. what everyone is bringing to the yeah. table yeah and it, that is is really difficult where there is such significant power imbalance yeah across the different actors that we would be sort of bringing together mm. and that and that makes me um wonder about something else that we were going to talk about which is like um we we're going to talk about sort of general the, the general under-resourcing in the, in the sector. And I wonder how like, it strikes you around how, how that relates to power balance, you know? Like, does it feel like the resources are, are, are mostly going in one direction? Does it feel like there's, you know, some people are in, in more power? I can't, I'm not getting this question right, but like, is there an imbalance in where the money is compared to where maybe it ought to be? I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, not to, <laughs> perhaps to avoid the where it ought to be, um, I think mm. there certainly is a, a power imbalance driving where the money is going. Yeah. Um, you know, there is um, a trend towards larger grants, larger consortium grants being yeah. issued. I mean, there are obviously some international NGOs based or placed to deliver on that scale than mm -hmm. some of the others and um, so I think that is a real challenge for those specialist organizations who really do have something um, valuable and absolutely vital mm. to, to add um, for those their agenda to get lost in that trend mm. um, so and that is a challenge that I don't think we've quite figured out but yes certainly I think um, we can talk more about the, the sort of under-resourcing in the sector, but it, it's not balanced across the sector. No. It isn't the same for everyone. So. Yeah, I think that I always used to think when I was running over Child Africa and, um, you know, it was hard to raise money. And <laughs> um, yeah. it like, there was this sense of, like, that I felt somewhere out there. <laughs> I don't quite know where. That somehow, like um, bigger, a bigger organisation was going to do better work. And um, whilst it's true that a bigger organisation can sometimes work at a bigger scale, I don't think that it follows that like bigger is better in terms of the quality of kind of impact, because like yeah. they're not really related. The fact that your organisation is big doesn't necessarily mean the change you create in the lives of the people you're working with is going to be better it might be or it might be the other way around you know a smaller organization might be better but it's I, I always find it quite hard to convey that somehow <laughs> but it always seems it sort of like needs to bug me <laughs> yeah but I, I think it is it is true and also organizations like Able Child they don't have the resources to invest in 
communications and M&E in the same way as sort yeah. of larger NGOs would have. So it is also more difficult for them to find a way to get that story out there um, yeah. and they don't have the same audience yeah. and the same channels to get it out there. But I think that I agree it doesn't, it doesn't go larger organisation better impact sure. at all. Um, I wouldn't say that it's necessarily always the opposite or no. necessarily, yeah, always no, that no, way. No. From my experience, the what Able Childs and organisations similar to Able Childs can achieve with very limited resources is absolutely incredible. Yeah. Really, and the impact that they have, the, the depth of impact that they have on the lives of the people that they work with is is just yeah it's it's incredible and it is hugely inspiring and it is what I'm sure you would share the same experience Marianne it is what keeps us all going at Able Child when the challenges do seem so tough but the fact that we know that it is that what we are doing is so important and that without us doing it there are genuinely people whose lives would be yeah. significantly worse without us then and no one is there to step into that space because no one else is doing that and that's why I think it is so important that the smaller NGOs are given the space to survive in what is this really difficult context that, that we're operating in at the moment yeah. and that if there was a kind of acceptance of that across the sector and uh, a respect for what those smaller NGOs could bring to the table mm. um, and working with within a larger consortium for example mm. they, that would be for the benefit of everyone mm. in the sector and the beneficiaries that we're trying to support mm. yeah I agree <laughs> <laughs> let's go back to the under resourcing in, in general like um We've sort of been skirting around it, but um, do you want to speak a bit more about, or, or maybe we can discuss a bit more about, like, the, the, the areas in which we see, like, an under-resourcing and what, we, what impact we think that has, you know? Um, yeah. 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 So, I mean, I think that having been in the sector and worked for different NGOs focusing on different areas, in terms of you know the the global challenges that we're trying to address everything everything is under resourced and if you spoke to someone at war child they would say that you know we need more money to support children affected by conflict of course we do that is true and, and at concern they would say we need more money to support the people affected by the drought in east africa mm. and the impact of climate change um, and that everything is under resourced and addressing the, the programming challenges is, is obviously the thing that we think of first and foremost, mm. um, because that's why we're all here. Yeah. Um, but for me and my role um, within finance, um, and my perspective, what I've, I've seen throughout every agency that, I, that I've worked with is that really the core costs of the organization, they, they fail to, I guess, inspire people <laughs> to yeah. 
in them and that they are the kind of they're the first things to get cut or at least they always get left behind when the organization is growing yeah you know that they fail to keep up and and that puts a lot of pressure on on those areas the, the kind of running of the organization and particularly on the staff yeah and that's a real real challenge for the sector yeah is how we make sure that we are giving people the the tools and the you know the support that they need to do what in many cases is a really really challenging job yeah. and um the the people who i work with in the sector you know most of them the vast majority of them are there because they believe in what their organization is doing and certainly that is why i'm in the sector mm. and so they will give and give and give yeah. um, and, ma- and make huge sacrifices in their life to to try to make this impact that we all want to see this change in, in the world and that can be often at the detriment of their own well-being which is something that you wouldn't think that NGOs set up to help people would really want to see for their staff and it certainly isn't but it but the pressure on these resources and the the temptation to put as much money as possible into the the cause um is something that is shared that temptation is shared across all all areas of 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 staffing and therefore influences decision making at most levels but i think it's something that we really do need to change because apart from the impact that it's having on on staff and continues to have on staff it is it genuinely has an impact on the the growth of the organization the effectiveness of the organization the efficiency of the organization going forward and in some cases the survival of the organization because actually investing in the organization's fundraising or investing in the organization's compliance with laws and regulations or investing in the organization's sort of financial security um, through finance staff you know that is what's going to ensure that the organization still exists in 10 years time to support the people who who will need our our support then and um it's a real challenge i think and something that within finance we battle with every day it's kind of a it's a fight internally within ourselves because we are here for the cause as well but also internally within our organizations to make the case for investment in those areas that are really um that are lacking I totally agree with that. And I think that um, it's, yeah, it, it's almost like we, I don't know, the, the, the funding model that has sort of arisen for the sector is predominantly um, sort of grants, grant, grant type of funding or donation types of funding where the people who are giving the money want to sort of understand the impact of their money in quite a direct way. So like, you know, they want to understand that either, you know, this has helped thousands of children or at least this is helping a child or, you know, different magnitude, but a similar kind of sense of it. And we've probably, A, failed to include all the real costs because a lot of the things we're talking about are actually part of the cost of doing all of that. Um, 
really they are but they don't they don't necessarily feel like it and also I think we've probably um got ourselves sort of over like it almost over reliant on those that kind of funding and tended to sort of not um be as good at, at generating a resource where we're saying to somebody like we just really need to invest in this organization in order that we can make change in the longer term and that means we just need a lump of money to be able to innovate and grow and develop and those pots of money do exist but they're sort of very few and far between aren't they yeah. so I yeah. think it's it feels like we need to sort of think kind of maybe differently. <laughs> and uh, I was in uh, Nairobi recently and I met with an organization that had invested in actually property. <laughs> and that was like feeding their unrestricted funds. So they were able to do, and I just thought actually, you know, um, sort of thinking, and I'm sure larger organizations do do that, but this wasn't a particularly large organization. And I, I don't know any small international NGOs here that have, have got significant investments, but I think like that kind of thing can really help with some of those areas. So I don't, I'm not, I'm not suggesting international NGOs go buying lots of property necessarily, but I think like there's a need for that sort of a, a different kind of resourcing basically. And there's a need for someone someone to think about that and and there are a few people thinking about it but but not enough not enough <laughs> yeah no it is a huge challenge and actually you know getting a stable funding source that is unrestricted yeah is a huge challenge and it is definitely becoming more challenging because of as you as you said you know donors can be quite restrictive and, and actually in some cases donors are becoming more restrictive yeah. in, in terms of what they are willing to fund and, and where they are willing to, what element of sort of core costs they're willing to bring into that. So, but I think that from what I've seen um, in the States over the last sort of six years, but certainly being on for a lot longer than that is, that we in the sector are perpetuating this problem yeah. by the way that we communicate with donors and the way that we communicate with the public. And, um, you know, you'll often see in charities saying 93 pence in every pound goes directly to supporting the cause. Well, yeah. actually, I would argue that 100 <laughs> pennies yeah. in every pound goes to supporting the cause otherwise why are you doing what are you spending the seven pence on and yeah actually that seven pence is likely to be going on something like fundraising but you the organization wouldn't survive without its fundraisers exactly. and we wouldn't be able to make any impact without spending that money so yeah. i really think that the sector needs to make a change but actually stepping out of that and being that NGO who no longer quotes that number when yeah. actually you're kind of up against it, uh, let's say as a competitor, is really, really challenging. Yeah. But we do need to change that narrative because we're just perpetuating that problem. And actually we're, we are really, we're not being transparent about what it takes to run an organization and we're giving people a false impression of what it takes to run an organization and then we're surprised when they question why we pay 
our staff at head office salaries, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, or why we spend any money on fundraising. And um, we shouldn't be surprised by those questions because I really feel like this is a problem that if we haven't created it for ourselves, we've certainly um, not helped the situation. Um, but yeah, so I, I mean, I think that we do need to widen that conversation and, and open up the the true reality of what it takes to to run an organization and be honest with people who support us about where where their money is going and i think that we are honest i mean i'm not saying that we're all we're, that we're lying or that we are hiding the truth in any way but we are we're telling the story in one specific way and actually there's a whole other way of telling the story that would actually, I, th I think, help address some of these problems so that donors accept that, yeah, I want to support these beneficiaries now and I want to help the organisation support all of its beneficiaries in the future. And that's quite difficult to argue with. And certainly I've seen this work really, really well. Um, and I worked on a project sort of doing this exact thing um, in a previous role and um, when you do engage with donors um, with that conversation mm. it, it can really resonate with them. they're buying into the organization as a whole the mission of the organization as a whole and actually the the ambition of the organization to meet the needs of all of its potential beneficiaries and that is why we want to grow no organization wants to grow for the sake of it. The reason why we want to grow as an organization and invest in fundraising is to reach more people because more people need our help than we can currently support. And I think that, you know, if you have that, that honest conversation with people, it can really make a difference. But it's very, very challenging when you're not having that conversation with, on a one-to-one -one basis yeah. <laughs> when you're trying to put it into, you know, a kind of bite-sized um, update or <laughs> update or leaflet or you know um, then it, it can definitely be really challenging and when you're competing for every pound with other NGOs who are able to quote 93 pence in the pound and that's what people are used to hearing and that's how they make decisions yeah because that's the way we've always done it then that is a real real challenge but it's something that I think that we have to overcome because we're losing the trust of the public because once you dig into that what that 93 pence is and what that seven pence is then you know it just doesn't quite add up no. it doesn't really reflect the reality of what what we're doing and why we're doing it but actually we need to be talking much more about yeah the impact that we're having now and the impact that we want to have in the future so why we're taking the decisions that we're taking and if we're taking good decisions that are in pursuit of our charitable objectives then why shouldn't we be open and honest about those yeah absolutely right i like yeah. what you said there about 100 percent. it's true like if it's not 100 percent, then why if 100 percent isn't towards your objectives then why <laughs> Why? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I think that's one of the questions that I, I, every individual should be asking, anyways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's just a, that's it's just a numbers game. Yeah. That ninety-three pounds. I mean, and I think it does a real disservice to our fundraisers who I have 
huge respect for. I've worked with right. some incredible fundraisers in my time to say that the money that we spend on fundraising isn't in pursuit of our charitable objectives. Yeah, but of really, course it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm. It's like a business saying that marketing wasn't part of how it, or, or you know, marketing and <laughs> PR wasn't a part of how it sold its product. It's nonsense, isn't it? Yeah. I'd like to ask this question that we like asking to all our guests here on the podcast. How do you take care of yourself and relax after all those numbers? (laughs) (laughs) I'm not a typical accountant. I don't come home and balance my my bank. (laughs) No, I definitely don't do that. Um, for me, what is just really important, and I don't know if it sounds a little bit sad, is um, spending time with my husband. He is um, a huge sport to me. He works in a really different field, so he has a completely different realm of experience to, to support me to sort of think about things differently. And, and we really do support each other because we bring completely different perspectives to some of the challenges that we each face and are very different careers and different lives. And I think that just makes us a really strong team. And if I've had a, if I've had a bad day, I, it really makes a difference to me to be able to talk to someone who is outside of the sector, who's not facing those challenges, who comes at it with a completely different viewpoint, mm. really different people. So for me, that really helps just mm. talk things through and, 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 and get through some of those challenges. He works nights, as I said, you know, he's got a different, quite a different career than I do. So um, that's not always possible. And sometimes, you know, the best thing that I can do is come home and have a total Netflix binge. And, (laughs) (laughs) you know, that's not necessarily, you know, what I would recommend for everyone, but certainly it works for me. And I think, oh, but I think, I think honestly, it works for a lot of people. <laughs> and I think that actually, you know, I would really just, I have sort of reflected on the question because it's something that Marianne and I spoke about before. Mm. How do you look after yourself? And it's actually, it's just about finding what works for you and accepting that and not being judgmental mm. about that. And, and another thing that, that I've done over the last couple of years is just to try to build my self-awareness about what it is that worked for me. And, and mm-hmm. one of the ways that I did that was um, I did Myers-Briggs a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. And, um, so I don't know if you've come across Myers-Briggs before, but it's, it's a kind of personality test and it gives you some indication of what your preferences are and, and what you're like and... Um, what works well for you and, and where you, you might sort of struggle uh, with other areas. And um, my scores for Myers-Briggs, like there's four categories. My, my scores came out kind of 50-50 on, on three out of four categories. So I mm-hmm. thought I was really uninteresting as a person and <laughs> <laughs> was quite disappointed by the results. But actually, I think what I realized, having reflected on it a little bit, um, it's just it's just about balance mm. it's about having balance in in my life so in my work and in my home life but even within work having balance and what I'm working on whether it's um, 
some really detailed work whether you know I work with people so my role is finance and operations and the operations side of that is HR, IT, facilities management you know just kind of looking after the office and you know that hadn't necessarily been something I thought that I would sort of go into I've always been a finance person but it's actually given me balance in my role that it works mm. really well for my personality so mm. yeah for me it's just about balance and finding what works for you and accepting that you came out close to the middle on three That's, yeah wow <laughs> yeah I, I want to ask you which one you weren't close on <laughs> you know and I can't even remember it was the second one um whatever that happens to be uh, I think it's n something e, n. I only know because of mine I know oh, that yes. mine is enfp I think n is um intuitive yeah intuitive or not not so intuitive whatever the other one is yeah so whatever the one that I came out on really strongly it was like 80 something percent was um about people it was about sort of thinking about people first and then thinking about um sort of taking a a step back and thinking more objectively something like that I can't remember yeah yeah, yeah. maybe that is the second one I can't remember them now either I was thinking I could but now I can't (laughs) have you ever done that what it stands for but I remember it was s and um that it yeah oh yeah it's s yeah 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 do you know what I'm now looking up because I'm intrigued (laughs) Um, s s is Oh, it's about information. Yeah, sensing or in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. So it was it's more like. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Because that it says focus on the reality. Yeah, practical application, details, facts, literal. Yeah. Oh yeah, I'm the other one. Yeah, imagine the possibilities. See the big picture. <laughs> <laughs> the other. Have you ever done Myers Briggs? No, actually, I, have I haven't. We have to send it. Yes, to please you. do. <laughs> Please do. Tread lightly, I'd say. Yeah, yeah. It's difficult to interpret the results without someone who really knows Myers-Briggs. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And, uh, so I, I had done it on my own, online, just as a sort of, I guess, like a fun exercise one of my, my friends had told me to do. And, and then actually it was when I did it with a Myers-Briggs sort of expert would have really made sense to me what it was telling me yeah um, so I think it's good to do it as part of a team and it's really good to just to understand yourself and understand how you work with others and, and how you communicate with others and but for me it was much more about it it was much more about myself and what I what I prefer and what I need in life and it really helped I, I, I would definitely recommend it yeah, I, t- I recommend it too. I'm going to send you a link so you can see more about what it is the other. Maybe we'll put one in the show notes as well for anyone that hasn't come across Myers-Briggs before. That was a bit of a detour. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. I think they'll love it. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's really interesting. Thanks for being yeah. in the conversation, Carrie. So it's been really great having you on the show. Thank you so much for being with us. And um, it was really interesting, yeah, touching on yeah. those issues about NGO financing. That, yeah, yeah, I feel inspired. It was really great to chat with both of you. Thank you so much for having me. And our theme tune over and over was written and performed by Eleanor Brown, who you can find at eleanorbrownmusic.com.